Hey guys, welcome back to the Grad Life Game Changers podcast. This is the podcast where we interview those that have had exceptional careers and become public figures in their particular discipline. Our guest today falls into that category, a former professional rugby player who's now one of Ireland's leading sports agents. Niall Woods, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Finn. Delighted to help. Let's kick it off with your career as a rugby player. How did you find playing in the English Premiership? Uh, I loved it. I was playing here. The game was amateur and then it turned turned pro in 95. Uh, So I went over in June 1996. So I just turned 25 at that stage. So uh, the facilities were sort of better than they were here. The pitches, everything. A lot of them are not a lot. There's probably three or four teams playing in football stadiums. So I played on the wing and I was quite quick. So that sort of suited me to be on a quicker service. So, and then just the whole advent of being a full-time pro. I was trying to be a, as near to a pro in the amateur days with training, but I was training to be a chartered accountant as well. So you had lectures a couple of nights a week uh, and Saturday mornings, as well as trying to train four or five nights a week and play matches. So it was quite hard. So that ability, even just to sleep for an hour or two during the day when you were a full-time pro was great. And then... You were living in London, so it was uh, it was a good time. So it's a bit more strict and severe, I think, pro rugby now in terms of training and what you can and can't eat as opposed to when I did it in 1996. So I had four or five years of it, so it was very enjoyable. You played in the days of carvery lunches and sort of 20 points on the weekends? Uh, there was, I don't know if I, I probably would have tried to drink 20 pints when I got there. So, uh, <laughs> Um, there was a few others who might have, but uh, I was sort of changing when I was even an amateur in the early 90s. It was starting to calm down a little bit. Uh, the early days of pro then as well. A lot of rugby league players came and played for rugby union teams. And they're men- not necessarily mentality, but they seem to be used to sort of going out two or three nights a week, which we, when we t- turned pro, thought you just weren't going to go out at all. So it was an element of our year or two where it, was, it seemed okay to go out as long as your training wasn't getting interrupted. And generally when you're younger, you can get away with it. So, but as you got older, you had to, you had to calm it down a bit and then going into the 2000s, then it just sort of got less and less because the demands physically on the game. Do you think you should have won more international caps? Uh, I could have, yeah. I suppose there's lots of people who would say that they should have won more. Um, at the end of the day, I didn't play particularly well when I played for Ireland. So that's probably looking back in hindsight why I didn't win more. I seem to be a very good club player, but also at that stage when you played in the wing, you didn't get a huge amount to do. So uh, it was a bit harder, but uh, look, if I had won, I won eight caps, if I had won 30 caps, 40 caps, 50 caps, uh, people forget very quickly, unless you're the likes of Brian Driscoll or Ron Nogara. So there's a guy, Kevin Maggs, who won 70 caps, who you probably may not have even heard of. No, so, I remember him well. He was one of my favourite players when I was growing up. But like when I mentioned Kevin to people, half of them go, who? Yeah. So for me, it doesn't really matter anymore. At the time, it was probably a bit more gutting that I wasn't involved. I would have liked more caps. But at the end of the day, I managed to do it. A lot of people can't play for the country in whatever sport it is. So I achieved it a number of times. Yes, you'd like a bit more, but it wasn't there to be all and end all for me. And what was it like then retiring and moving on to the next phase of your life? Because a lot of people say how difficult this period can be for professional athletes that they don't really know what to do next or the buzz of playing for your country or playing professional sports just can't be replicated. How did you deal with that? Uh, I struggled. Um, First off, I got a career-ending injury. So in September 99, I 
ruptured my ACL and my MCL and my knee in a game. So I was out for 13 months, played for about three more, and then had another reconstruction on my MCL. So I was out for another six or seven months. So the guts two years I was rehabbing. So I sort of knew it was coming and the surgeon told me at 30, you've got an arthritic knee. So basically you need to retire because you'd be limping for the rest of your life if you keep playing. So that part was easy in that he told me I couldn't play anymore. Um, it was then beyond that. And then what are you going to do? So I had trained to be a charter. I'd gone to Trinity uh, only for a year. I did economics and philosophy. And then I decided I'd study charter accountancy. So I was working in my dad's office. I went pro. I'd done a number of exams in that. I hadn't finished it, but I didn't want to go back to it. So I was a bit lost in terms of what I should do, like a lot of people. Um, but dealing with not playing again was the hardest part. You didn't necessarily miss playing, but some days you did. When there was big Ireland wins or something like that, you'd miss it a lot. But just uh, not being able to get out there, uh, mixing with the boys. I, try and, I stayed away from my teammates over there. I found myself, I went to two or three games and it was quite a bitter and twisted individual watching games of saying, oh, I'm better than him or I should still be playing or I could still be playing. So uh, I didn't go to a game for about a year. And then I got into co-commentary on radio over there with BBC Five Live. Um, and I found I wasn't the bitter and twisted individual then because I wasn't really thinking about, oh, I, I'm missing playing. I was talking about the game. So I enjoyed that. And I did that and a bit on Sky Sports for probably five or six years after that. Um, so that sort of got me through it. But at the time, there wasn't a huge amount of help. Whereas now and over the last 10 or 15 years, ultimately, the career I went into was into the players union. I'm working with players to help them across all aspects of their career, both when they're playing and more so when they aren't playing or when they're finishing. So I've managed, uh, obviously, the last 10 years or 11 years individually, over 50, 60, 70 players. And there's a percentage, probably 10 or 15% of them have had similar, where they've had to have career-ending injuries. So I have one at the moment, a client, um, and I'm helping him get through the process. The thing with me is I'm able to flag and tell him what, what's going to happen, what the emotions will be, what he'll miss most. Um, but like you said there, some ex-players can't uh, come to terms with the fact that the adrenaline of, play, adrenaline of playing in front of 50,000 or 80,000 people isn't going to be replicated. You, you actually can't get that anywhere, no matter what you do. But you have to accept, you have to get into a job. It might take you three or four or five different jobs before you find something you enjoy. Um, but nothing's ever going to compare to it. So I, I got used to that pretty quickly, I think, or I accepted it. So I found that part easier. But for some, that's very, very difficult. So how do you help your clients now make that transition? You're just there for them and, and advising them. Like one of the the biggest things is the insurance process. If you have a career-ending injury and will you get claimed? First off, in the day-to-day -day job, you would advise the clients to get insurance. There's a certain element of insurance, for example, with the IRFU contracts here, that they have X amount if there's a career-ending injury, whereas that gets smaller as you get older, so you need to have sort of, they call it top-up insurance, um, for if the worst happens. Uh, you could be married, two, three, four kids. You wouldn't know mortgages, car loans, etc. So if it all ends, uh, you need to be able to pay for things. Otherwise, you're going to struggle financially. Um, so that side of it, you're helping them during their career so that that transition is a little bit easier. If, for example, it's a career-ending injury or just age catches up. Another player will probably retire this year with age. So again, it's trying to help them 
on what he's going to go into from a work point of view. Trying to see this on how much I think it's affecting him or not. Um, so then there's an element of probably a father figure in the role I do. Um, I don't like to be called that or it makes you feel a lot older, but sometimes the longer you're in a, in a career, the more experience you have and you, you start to realize you have a lot more you can give back and to help people. So I enjoy doing that. And I think to, to work in the Players Association, you have to have that element of a paternal aspect to your character, which I obviously have. Um, whether that came from my parents, I don't know, but it seems to be inherently in me. So I enjoy helping players, whether it's in the good times or in the bad times. Have you ever seen a player cling so much on to their career that they're unable to let it go and that you might have to try and step in and tell them, look, you really need to retire now. You could get a really tough injury or it's a case of like your, your, um, your stock is falling so rapidly, but, but the player just might be so addicted to the game and so committed to what they were doing that, that they don't have the sort of vision that someone like you might have as a, as an agent and someone looking on from afar. Have you ever tried to say, look, you need to step away now when someone may not be, be ready to do so? I did have a client who wanted to continue playing. He was turning 33. He was definitely both from a playing aspect. He'd, he'd been past his best for probably a year or two. He was clinging a little bit, uh, but he wanted to continue to play in France. And physically, his body wasn't in good, in good shape. So my advice was, look, you need to stop. And, um, and what I said to him was, look, I retired at 30 with an arthritic knee. I haven't been able to play with my kids. Uh, you can't, I can't go out and kick a soccer ball. I haven't run in 20 years. So that's the downside to my career. Um, so he went off and thought about it. and Because I said, look, if you go and play in France in the second division, there's nine, 10-hour bus journeys at different times to different grounds on a Friday. Like he can't sit in a car for two and a half, three hours with his back being in pieces. So he went away, listened to it, and rang me a few weeks later and said, you know what, I'll retire at the end of the season. I think you're right. And I had another client in France who wanted to play another year about four or five years ago. And then I had said, no, you need to stop now because he was nearly 36. And then he rang one December and he said, I looked in the mirror earlier and he said, I'm wrecked. He said, I need to stop at the end of the season. So I didn't have to push too much more with him. But I think the best example, sort of highest profile person who didn't do it or spotted himself is probably Brian O'Driscoll and went out at the top. He could have probably gone. I know there was chance for one more year when he was playing his last few games and he did one more year and then he just knocked it on the head and went out at the top. There's other players I would see, they aren't clients of mine or weren't clients of mine who are def definitely trying to hang on. And it's more the fame element and they're trying to, just stay involved or you can see they've moved job to job to job. They just can't find what's right. Um, I'm not going to name them, but um, there is examples, both good and bad, I suppose. So yeah, part of the job is that to try and see it, see it early enough. And whether you, but again, you don't want to influence them too much one way or the other, they have to make their decision. So you're trying to give them sort of the pros and cons of both playing on or stopping. And hoping they might make the right decision. Just wondering what it's like being a rugby agent, especially in Ireland, because the IRFU have so much power and the whole point of the provinces is ultimately to make the national team as competitive as possible. So if you're a football agent and you're working in the UK and you say you had a, a player who's playing at Manchester United but not getting in the team, as an agent, it would be your role to step in and say, all right, let's get you out of here. Let's get you to West Ham or let's get you to Newcastle so you can get game time and start playing again. But 
in rugby in Ireland, like if someone like Joey Carberry isn't playing much at Leinster, the RFU will step in and say, we need this guy to go to Munster because we need to have another competitive 10 to compete with Johnny Sexton for the national team. So what's it like for you being an agent when you might have a player who isn't getting enough game time at a certain province, but ultimately the RFU are kind of, it seems like they're constantly overseeing every single move just to try and make the national team as good as possible. What do you do when a player needs more game time or needs a move? Do you have to consult with the RFU or is it the RFU that makes that decision or, or can you make that for, for your own clients? Uh, ultimately, I don't make the decision ever. Uh, the, play, uh, the player does. So you're trying to give them, a bit like the answer to the last question, as much information as possible on all the different aspects that staying in his team or whatever province he's in here and if it's going to England or going to France. Um, and you're trying to weigh up the advantages of each and the disadvantages of each. So I had a case last year of a player who could have gone to the Premiership, uh, probably would have got more game time over there and developed as a player because he was 22. Um, but there's an element of loyalty, which is very strong in the provinces here. That So it's harder for them to make a decision to leave. Um, an element of, I'll give it one more crack or one more year, two more years here. And if I'm still not getting game time, I'll, I'll move then. So sometimes there's players who probably leave that process too long and are 26 or seven before they move. Uh, sometimes it's better to go younger, in my opinion. But ultimately, what's it like for me? It can be frustrating. Um, but my job is to get options for them. So if they have an option here and one or two abroad, that's my job. I give them the pros and cons. I let them talk to their parents. Some will be influenced by other players. Some will be influenced by their conservative by nature. Some are very high risk and will say sort of, no, no, I'm happy to take the risk and go. Some think they might not get back, back into a team over here if they go away. Uh, so you have to weigh that all up because every player is different and his mindset is different. Um, the financial element comes in. Sometimes it's sort of parity. The money, sometimes it's more to go abroad. Sometimes it's not. And the way the market's gone the last year since COVID in England, certainly the money generally has come down for certain players but there's still a demand for it, a certain type of player as well. So you can be lucky if they're really looking for that one position and that's a client of yours. So again, you, you factor all that in. Um, I have a couple of players leaving the country this year, so are moving provinces. So they've decided, again, predominantly it's game time and just not playing enough. Sometimes there's players who just sort of might only get to play. I had a player, he was out of province for four years and he averaged four starts a year. So you just aren't going to develop as a player with four starts. So I think he had 10 match days across four starts and six benches. But even at 10 matches a season, you're not going to develop as a player. So you have to start looking and going, right, I have to make the hard decision and go elsewhere to play. And it mightn't be as an attractive, not necessarily financially, but a club. It might be lower down in the Premiership in the UK or lower down in the second division in France. But if you're going to then play 20 to 25 games, you're going to enjoy it more and you're going to develop as a player. And you'll also develop as a person. You go out of your comfort zone no matter what you do. In any career, you're going to learn. And that's particularly what I enjoyed about going and living in London for seven years. Um, a lot of my friends from school never went anywhere and they're still sort of doing the same job they were doing before I left in 1996. So um, it's good to experience different cultures and different careers. And you see when players come into the teams here, they're generally bringing experiences from elsewhere. Just the RFU choose to 
sort of try and persuade players to go do the other way. They're quite happy to bring people in. Um, but look, that's their job. They're trying to, as you said, everything going towards making the Irish team as competitive as possible. So sometimes the provinces suffer and that may irritate the provinces, may irritate me as well or other agents, but that's just the, the system we're in at the moment. And have you found that a few times where you might be pushing a player to move one direction, but the RFU are stepping in to say, no, this guy should stay here and there's a potential for him being an international in a few years? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like I had one guy, who was, I think he was seventh choice in the province. Like he wasn't getting any game time the following season. And, and the, the RFU province, were still pushing for him to stay there? Yeah, the province were. Okay. Not necessarily the RFU. Um, and the province were telling him he'd never play again for the province. So then he went away for two years and they came back and signed him. So, and he played X number of games abroad, whereas he wouldn't have got any when he was there. But that's their job. I understand that. They're always going to try and hold on to players, whether they're going to play them a lot or not, sometimes can be irrelevant to them. Their bigger picture for them is the squad. It's not just individual players. So sometimes they can be blinded as well by... Like in Leinster, when Munster were very successful, that nowhere's better than Munster or Leinster. So players won't see that until they leave. And any player I've ever sort of moved club has always been enjoyed it or enjoyed the experience. Sometimes it doesn't work out in the field. They don't play as much. Um, I have one player at the moment in France who's struggling just because the environment in France in some of the clubs can be just completely alien to what it's like here. But it's good for him to understand it and see how things don't work because everything works very smoothly here in a club, in a pro environment. Um, so he, he understands that. He knows it's difficult, but he's happy, he's learning, and he's enjoying it now. I'm wondering if you have any opinion on the NFL, because obviously the wages there are absolutely massive, but I've heard this stat. I think 80% of NFL players go broke. And the way you speak, you speak like someone who really does truly have the player's best interests at heart. You've gone through that transition yourself of going from a pro athlete into the next stage of your career. And it seems like in the NFL, there's a lack of Niall Woods in the market as agents. Like these guys just must be surrounded by bad management if they're all going broke. Have you ever considered trying to get into that market or do you have any opinion on, on why this happens at such a high rate? I think in the NFL, it's a, it's a much shorter career and obviously much greater earnings. It's not necessarily the management at times. It can be sort of key personnel around the player. Sometimes it's a family member or a friend who's not qualified whatsoever to deal with money. And the sums are so big, they could be talked into investing money in something that's absolutely crazy. And that's generally one of the elements into how they go broke. I mean, technically I was broke when I finished as a pro rugby player. I dropped 75% salary. So um, I just had to knuckle on and get down, get on with it and then try and work yourself back up again. Uh, I mean, even when I started, Navy Blue Sports. I took another pay cut when I was I was almost uh, 39. I was married with two kids and a big mortgage, and I dropped about 60 cents salary. So, very understanding wife, uh, and I suppose an entrepreneurial spirit in me. So I was willing to back myself and take the risk. But some guys mightn't have the support structure around them. And that's part of the problem in the NFL. Some guys come from very poor backgrounds, aren't particularly well educated. Um, and that puts them at a disadvantage. So they can be easily led. Again, there's numerous cases where their brother or father are managing the money and they go broke because the father or brother just don't have a clue what they're doing. Uh, they just get 
carried away with it, unfortunately. It's see, you see it in soccer sometimes as well. Yeah, actually, on that, I want to ask you: Do you have any opinion on the Harry the Harry Kane um, transfer saga this summer, where his brother was representing him, and they I think they signed that six year contract with Spurs about three years ago for two hundred grand a week with no release clause. And they thought there was some sort of a gentleman agreement in there where if someone came in for Harry Kane's market value, he'd be allowed to go. I heard someone say it was like a, a thesis on how not to get a deal done in the football transfer market and exactly why your brother should be representing you. Yeah, it's like if you're going to buy some insurance, like I would always go to an insurance broker for some advice. So are the same medical advice you go to a doctor or some shape or form to get it you don't go to an accountant to get it so but people seem to think oh i know what we're doing it's really easy to be an agent so the biggest thing about being an agent is not is market knowledge and values and people say to me oh such and such a solicitor he'd be great as an agent you don't because of dealing contracts but like majority of the rugby contracts the actual clauses are pretty much similar so either i i mean i did so much with the players union and practically a solicitor or not because I didn't do any study but uh, I know the flags when I look through a contract and then I'll send it to my solicitor but it's not that easy and clubs will take advantage of you no matter what you do and provinces here take advantage of the younger players more so they'll take advantage of parents or players who come in with parents uh, and I get it so the minute they go in they see a parent coming in they know they don't know the market value of the player and know you probably just signed something to do it quick so that's what you're working against. And some of the, the, the smarter players would get an agent at an earlier age um, are the ones that need it at an earlier age. I don't think a lot of players need rugby agents too early. Soccer is a completely different market. And because the money is so big, um, again, it's a bit like going back to the NFL guys where you get a family member to advise you on something they have absolutely no idea on. So it's absolutely ludicrous. But I mean... I have a player in the club and he's the only player in the club with a release clause because I insisted on one going in. Now, I had them sort of buy over a barrel because they really needed this player and it was late on, but you can't always get it. So again, if a club sees a family member coming in, they're not going to give on stuff like that. So there's no surprise that Harry Kane's brother didn't get a release clause in. Um, but again, he shouldn't be doing it. So does that go back to Harry Kane? Or ultimately, it probably is yes. It's his fault for letting his brother do it. He should have had, but some guys don't want to, they might've had a bad experience with agents before and they say, oh, no, I'm not, I don't want an agent doing it. Uh, and some guys, players haven't been there before and seen a lot of them. And in the players union, they'll bitch and moan about an agent. So, and think they know more, which they don't, unfortunately. Um, but there is bad agents as well. There's good agents. So it's a, it's a tough one. You have to get the balance right, I suppose. How do you find out the market value for a certain position? Can't be telling you that. <laughs> Um, it's just experience and time, I suppose. At the start, there was an element of guesswork, my first few clients. Um, again, it's contacts as well. So, Would you have a database I, of what certain players that aren't your clients are on? Yeah. Okay. There's, there's an element of you hear from other agents, you hear current clients saying such and such is on X amount. Some of the time it's exaggerated, some of the time it's inaccurate. Uh, so when I started, I go back to 2011. So Conor O'Shea, David Humphreys and Mark McCall and myself all played in the back line in London Irish. So the three boys were director of rugby in Gloucester, Saracens and Harlequins. So it's easier for me to get information from the three boys. 
than an agent who has no experience or no context coming into the game to try and get some idea of market knowledge. Because if you go in and bluff a club on values, they just won't, they, they won't take it seriously and they're really unlikely to come back and use you again. So it's quite hard to get into it. I was in rugby, I suppose, so to speak, straight off because I played. And then I had 10 years between the English Players Union and the one over here. So I knew all the players over here. Not necessarily personally, there's probably 180 players at the time. So, but they knew my name and they knew I ran the Players Union. So I had, I suppose, an advantage in starting. Um, so again, again, it's using context. Again, the entrepreneurial spirit, you're going out, you're asking for things. You don't ask, you don't get. So you might not always get information from certain people, but there was ones I knew I'd be able to get. Um, and then the more contracts you do, the more knowledge you have and experience and then the, an understanding of the values. And once you start to argue or your case, once you have sort of solid facts behind you, it's very easy or very hard for the other side to argue against you. Now, ultimately they'll just say, we don't have enough money if they want. But again, there's an element of power in, a in any negotiation, one side might have more than the other. So sometimes I have more, sometimes the club has more. And again, it's recognizing when you don't have the power probably and getting a deal done quickly or dragging a deal out to get more money for a client. And that comes again over numerous years of experience. Does the media play a big role in rugby transfers? Because I know in football it does that often you'll get agents slipping to a journalist, oh, my players wanted by Barcelona, where same with Barcelona don't have any interest, but they're just doing it to try and bump up this guy's contract at his current club. Is there any of that in rugby where you might something might be leaked to the Irish Independent or the Irish Times that, oh, this guy's been offered 400 grand a year over in Perpignan or something, where, when there might not be any truth to that, and it's just an agent or a player trying to get a, a contract bump? Sometimes clubs do it as well. This is the thing, you know, the first thing, inkling is that the agent leaked it. It's not necessarily the agent or the player. Um, sometimes a club will do it to put pressure on the on the player to sign because they know the player. Sometimes players don't like it in the media. So in rugby there isn't as much, and I generally don't use it or have to use it. I try and do it sort of not out of the media's eyes. I suppose it's not as much of a demand in rugby, I think, as in football. So it's definitely everyone seems to know all the player salaries in the UK. Um, or globally as well if they want it it can be in the media so there's much more not necessarily secrecy but it's definitely quieter in terms of rugby so there's not as much of that as in football um, why maybe it's just because rugby is still in its infancy it's whatever 27 years almost coming up as a pro sport as opposed to football which is whatever 100, 150 years um, down the track same with NFL is so far down the track as well so maybe it'll come a time where it's used a bit more, but currently it's not used a huge amount. Sometimes it's journalists as well, just, just trying to fish for info. I had a guy, a journalist last week, talking about a player of mine who signed with the province here four months ago. And he said, oh, I heard, yeah, there's a lot of English clubs interested in it. It was utter nonsense. But that's the problem. Some journalists, they don't have anyone to answer to. They can say what they want. Mm. Uh, or find out a rumor and just put it in the media. That sort of stuff irritates me, but that's just part and parcel of it. So that's one set element of when certain things get put in the media. It's not always an agent or a player who put it in there. Sometimes it's beneficial to put it in. 
but not always. Are you in any other sports other than rugby? Yeah, um, I did some cricket at the start. I have a number of sports media talent that I represent. Uh, Darren Maloney, Dave McIntyre, lead commentator with Virgin Media, formerly with News Talk. And then I have a number of clients, like Fiona Cochran, who's a client, does uh, OT Sport, uh, our rugby punditry. Richie Sadler is a client, ex-footballer, who's a soccer pundit. Uh, I have numerous, a couple of female rugby players, GEA players. Had some athletes, Natalia Coyle, who's a modern pentathlon. Mark Rowan used to be a client when he was a Paralympic athlete. Uh, again, just sourcing sort of speaking engagements and sponsorship. So it's, it's a bit broader from when I started, which was predominantly just in rugby. Is there any part of you that would ever aspire to get to a level of like a, a super agent, similar to George Mendes or something, even if you leave the, the money aspect for the side of the, the amount that these guys earn? Just it seems really cool if you're into football that you could have that amount of influence and that amount of power over the football transfer market. Like if, if Paul Pogba leaves Man United this summer, I forget who his agent's called, but he's another super agent. That guy's going to have such an influence over what happens in the entire football transfer window. Would you ever like to try and break into football and get to their level? Is that, is that a long-term goal or do you, are you very content just looking after rugby players and, and dealing with more domestic not stuff? Necessarily, not necessarily content. Uh, I've looked at getting into football and it's a bit like me getting into rugby. I had a head start and others don't mm. because they don't have the knowledge or the contacts in rugby. So I don't have the contacts in football or the market knowledge at the moment. So if we were to get into it, we probably need to either acquire a football agency, which is costly, or get someone in to run this, the football side of it who has the necessary contacts. So we nearly looked at it during COVID um, with an ex-footballer. Um, I don't necessarily need... My job as an agent is, is to make the player look good. So I think in football, like you were saying there, you're sort of glamorising the agent. Whereas I've no interest in that. I, I was a player. I played in front of 80,000 people in Wembley. I had all that. So my job is that my current players get all that and how they de deal with it and do they deal with it well. So You're not I mean, looking to be the main star on, a, on an Amazon Prime talk or no. anything like that. Yeah. No, like my player is, that's my job done. And if he's the main star, he's getting paid well and ultimately I will be remunerated well for it. Do I want to be a Mendes? I mean, he's hated, allegedly. Not necessarily, I don't know as a person, but everyone gives out about him. So I certainly don't want to be someone like that. Um, yeah, he's millions and millions coming into the bank. So maybe he's quite happy for that. But I don't need that intrusion um, or that level of money to be happy. So I'm more focused on being, like I said, successful. Uh, my players get the credibility. If they're getting it, then I'm doing a good job. So if the players are staying with me, I'm doing a good job. And to date, I don't lose a huge amount of clients. So that's sort of a, I suppose, a tap in the back and saying, I'm obviously doing a good job. But again, how I get clients is word of mouth. A lot of the time, it's not always that way. But you do a good job for one player he talks in the dressing room to another one and they ring you and say, oh, can I meet you? So again, it's a constant sort of trying to keep the success level rate, rate high for the contracts and the service you give the clients. So getting a highest contract value is one thing we have to add. There's other areas that we would look after the player in and you have to keep on your toes. Otherwise, they're high achievers. So if you don't do it, they'll up and leave. Sorry, go on. 
No, if they're not happy with the service, whether it's, oh, you did a poor contract for me, or you're not getting me sponsorship contracts, or you're not helping me on social media, you're not giving me media training, you're not getting me the right financial advice, insurance advice, tax advice, all of that. There's all the sort of less sexy areas that you have to do. And I think I did spent 10 years doing a lot of the non-sexy stuff in the players union. So that comes naturally to me. So all of that is a given. And then I've Connor Dean, who was a client of mine is now working for me as an agent. So he had played down at Connacht for three years and is now in about six months. So again, you're trying to add, and then there's Mallory and Gemma who work here as well on the sponsorship and the speaking engagements and commercial side of things. Excuse me. You're trying to add sort of more things you can give to your clients. So the service is as good as it can be and it changes over the years um, and what they want. And, and sometimes some players want it more than others. And then I, you'd have some clients who sometimes they just go, I don't really care what you do. Just get me the best contract. So you're sort of given a clear task then, you know what exactly you have to do. Um, and then there's other clients who want it all. They want all the sponsorship advice, and social media advice. So you have to, I suppose you have to be set up to give it to everyone but not all of the clients at any one given time are looking for everything from you. How do you give advice on social media now? Like I know with, again, I hate to keep referring to the footballers, but in the premiership, they're, they're saying that like most of them just aren't even tweeting themselves. They just have teams of guys that, that run their social media for them. Do you advise your players if they want to try build a profile to be a bit out there? Like if, if someone's just putting up, Instagram after Instagram of great wins today, delighted for the lads. That's not going to be that engaging. But like I see some footballers on, on Twitter, uh, a great example is of the guy that plays striker for Newcastle, um, St. Maximan. He, I don't know if it's him or if it's his team, but he's very funny on Twitter. And he puts like very kind of cheeky out there tweets that potentially could cause a bit of trouble, but he's got a very high engagement because of it. How do you try advise a player of yours that might be looking for more sponsorship deals outside of rugby that wants to build up a social media profile to be authentic and to be kind of funny on social media, but not also to cross the line that he might piss off the club? It's harder in a team sport where there's strict rules. So in rugby, there's a lot of strict rules of what they can and can't do. But you're trying to get them to get their personality out there because ultimately that's what, whether it's fans, brands, supporters, media, uh, are interested in. They want to see what's behind the player. They can see what he does on the pitch. Um, but they want to know what he eats sometimes, what he drinks, um, what his hobbies are. So you're trying to educate them on that. Mallory, who works here, is very experienced in social media. We also have an external company who gives training to players who want it. But also they have to want it, which is the biggest thing. So a lot of my clients may want the sponsorship opportunities, but unless they do the work on the social media side, which is a prerequisite requisite now with brands, um, like someone that would just say, oh, uh, we're only interested in someone who has 50,000 plus followers. So that immediately will rule out the majority of my clients, for example. Or some will be, has to be 100,000 followers or more. So you go within Ireland, there's hardly anyone with over a million followers on Instagram in a sporting sense. So, and then, and that probably the, one, the most glaring one is Greg O'Shea, <clears throat> but he's got a million plus followers because he won Love Island, mm -hmm. not because of what he did in the rugby. So, um, again, some guys are more conservative, some guys are more natural at it, and, and it takes a lot of years. Like Connor Murray isn't a client of mine, but he's very active on social media. 
and very good at it. Uh, he's into his early 30s, so he's, he's quite experienced at it. So you, at times you'd be saying, follow other people and see what they do, but then tailor it for yourself. I'm trying to give a mix. So the external company will show them the do's and don'ts, how you sort of build, can build both sort of followers and engagement, because the engagement is the key for the brands. And you can have someone with 200,000 followers, but if they're, not, if they're posting once every three months, they're not going to use them. So again, there's a balance between followers and engagement. So and it's just not necessarily nagging them. There's ones we've recognized that are clients of ours that need help with it. So you do different things at different stages with them. Sometimes you might need to give them a reminder that they haven't posted in two months. So there's all these different metrics that you can get measured. So at times we do that. Um, but again, it's, it's like anything, it's even, it's like the, post-career after rugby at time every couple of months you might be going are you doing a study and or i generally know if they are or not or if they've just done a degree if they're 21 or two you might leave them a year or two and then sort of go are you going to do anything are you looking to do anything else uh sometimes they're proactive they might look to do a master's themselves they're doing it in their own time and then sometimes the older ones heading sort of 30 into the early 30s are more focused on the post-career so uh it may be easier sometimes, or sometimes there's a few who are harder in their early thirties. They don't want to do anything. They just think it's going to keep going. So you're trying to break that down, go look, it's going to end soon. At some stage, it could be two years, one year, four years. So you need to get prepped so that if you're earning, for example, 200,000 a year, that you're not dropping down to sort of 25, 30,000, because you're probably going to have monthly commitments based on your salary. So um, you're trying to get them to save, you're trying to get them to do a pension. There's a thing called sportsman's tax relief where they get an element of the tax they have paid during their career, uh, where they get it back at the end of the career. So sometimes that's an effect like a pension. So there's all these different areas that you just have to sort of tap away at, not all the time, but at different times of the year with different players. Last question for you to anyone that's listening to this podcast that might want to try following your footsteps. What advice would you give to someone that's looking to break into this industry? I often get it. There's a sports management course in UCD, for example, and a number of the students will ask or email and say, look, they're looking to try and get into the sports management business. How do you get into it? So it's a question I get asked regularly. And, or they'll say, how did you get into it? So obviously I was in the sport, so that's how I got into it. The best thing probably is to look at the sponsorship side and the brand side and the PR and events and trying to work for a company in there and getting, it mightn't be what you want to do, but for a year or two, you get in, you see the agency side of things. Uh, it's not necessarily directly managing talent on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's a good way to get in. So for example, a girl Mallory who's working here would have worked for Taneo and she would have worked for WHPR. So they're probably two of the biggest PR and sports sponsorship agencies in Dublin. Um, so she's, number of years experience there so for me looking that's the sort of experience i would want to bring someone in here so sometimes connor obviously who's come and work for me now as an agent is predominantly because he's a, a rugby player and he knows the players so he's not someone coming from outside the sport into it that's where it's harder or if you've no experience in the industry so again yeah going to the sport sponsorship agencies is a Good start are the likes of the IRFU, GAA, the FAI, the governing bodies. 
um, like Swim Ireland, Basketball Ireland, any of the smaller ones to get in, get some experience. And generally, it can go from there. I mean, I, I didn't set out to be an agent. Never thought I would be an agent. I mean, it's strange to be an accountant, so it's a bit different to what I thought I was going to be. Um, pro rugby sort of changed that. And then I didn't want to go back to being an accountant. But again, I did 10 years in the player union across here in the UK. And then I was looking to do something different. And there was three or four people close to me who said, why would you leave sport? It's what you do best or what you've always done. So and why wouldn't you start an agency? My old agent in the UK said that. Um, and it just got me thinking. So it was probably down to him that I got into it. Great stuff. Niall, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem, Finn. Thanks. Enjoyed it.